I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey everyone, this is Eric. Before we get started, I want to turn you guys on to one of our favorite podcasts called Lands of Leviathan by Peter Sleeman. Uh, he's, of course, an Agora podcast network member. And of course, we joined Agora because we said, hey, we really like these podcasts uh, and we want to be part of this. And so Peter was definitely one of the one of the podcasts where he said like, oh, yeah, this is like us. And one of the things we love about it is it is like us. Right. So it reminds us a lot of ourselves. Peter brings a whole lot of context to understanding the international order. Uh, he brings some comedy um, and he really nails it with his analysis. I think I always learn a lot. Uh, from Lands of Leviathan. I highly recommend you guys check it out. You can, of course, just search for Lands of Leviathan on your favorite pod catcher um, or go to the Agora Podcast Network on Facebook or agorapodcastnetwork.com online. You can find them there. Anyway, take a listen, um, have fun, learn some stuff, and you'll get to reconsider a little bit about how the world works through him as well. Welcome to another episode of Reconsider, where we don't do the thinking for you. Today, we're very excited about the program. This is going to be the first part of a two-episode show that we're going to be doing about the peace process in Colombia. Now, one of the reasons that Eric and I started this podcast in the first place was to discuss these really just big deal news items that we felt weren't really getting appropriate coverage in the U.S., so we're very excited to talk about a story that is really a huge deal, not so far from our own borders, that's really getting almost completely drowned out by election coverage of Donald Trump's most recent tweet. Yeah, the implications for what's going on right here for South America and even for the entire Western Hemisphere are potentially massive. And one of the things that we talked about in the last episode roughly was about, you know, positive and negative trends in the world, but looking at some of the positive stuff that doesn't seem to get covered because they saw those little gray balls instead of the red ones. And one of the things we mentioned was the FARC peace process in Colombia, which has actually accelerated quite a bit since then and is on the cusp of a final deal. So today what we're going to do is we're going to dig into this really major event in greater detail. And in the process, we're going to learn a little bit about how the Western Hemisphere's longest ongoing war may finally be coming to an end. So you may have heard of Colombia. Uh, cocaine, that's definitely a thing. Violence, lots of that. Maybe not always a nice place to visit. Don't go to the jungles. You'll get kidnapped, that kind of stuff. Uh, what you might not know is it's the second largest by population country in South America. 
and has the potential to be a big geopolitical competitor. But part of what's been holding it back is this 55-long-year war. So it's been against FARC, the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia. And Xander assures me that if you know Spanish, the acronym makes a lot more sense. It's F-A-R-C. And their guerrilla civil war within Colombia has been obviously highly disruptive over the past half century. I mean, longer than most people have been alive for the nation's development. And a lot of people have been hurt or killed or displaced. But amazingly, I mean, for what most people seemed impossible because FARC was just a way of life, there's been a big peace deal signed between FARC and the government of Colombia. And October 2nd, there's going to be a referendum, a simple majority referendum for the people of Colombia to decide whether they're going to accept it and whether there's going to be peace with FARC. And the way it got started uh, was that in the 1950s, communism got popular in Colombia, as it did with many places. Colombia had pretty high inequality and lots of poverty, uh, in particular rural poverty. So it starts to look a lot like China rather than places like Eastern Europe. And there were various insurgent groups that wanted to bring communism to Colombia and, and follow the path of some other communist nations by overthrowing the government, overthrowing the, and taking over the means of production, stuff like that. The United States, of course, has said, ooh, we don't like communism in our backyard, even more so than we don't like it elsewhere. You know, we don't want the Russians having yet another place to put nukes and bases and such. So it began a, a crackdown and supported a crackdown by the Colombian government against these guys. And they started to reform into FARC in the agrarian side and the National Liberation Front, or the ELN, who are also communists, in the more urban intellectual side. So FARC sort of took together all these disparate groups and said, we're going to hold the, hold the line. From there, we began this very, very long insurgency. It's somewhat of an asymmetric war. And as FARC gained territory, they started actually occupying it and governing it in their own way to exploit the resources, uh, to establish legitimacy, etc. So it, it reminds you a lot, actually, of the Maoists of China during their civil war after World War II. But one of the things that has kept them from winning outright is that Colombia didn't make many of the same mistakes as the Chinese nationalist government, the Kuomintang, which was for them mostly to hold up in uh, cities and sp spread their forces out among all these cities, thinking, oh, if we hold the cities, it'll be fine. Uh, and the communists were able to take one city at a time once they'd gotten enough of the rural area. Colombia has been fighting back big time, and it's been, therefore, a really bloody civil war that's affected almost everyone in the country. Now, to really understand the complexity of this conflict, we need to talk about these right-wing militia groups that have come to be known as paramilitaries. And like most countries that experience some sort of revolutionary insurgency, the Colombian government effectively lacked the ability to assert control, maintain uh, security and stability over different parts of their countries. And that's part of the reason that the FARC was ever was able to get inroads in the first place. So in response, since the central government in Colombia wasn't really powerful enough to you know, reach its tentacles out to all the different countryside areas where these communist sentiments were growing, and arguably they're still not, hence the peace deal, the government basically let local elites from all these different regions form paramilitary groups to combat these insurgents. These were generally right-wing militia groups. They're they governed locally 
in the sense that regional elites gave sort of like the marching orders, but it, it, in theory, they were on the side of the government. Now, if, if you can imagine, if we were talking about Afghanistan, these, quote, local elites would probably just be referred to as warlords. It's kind of a similar power relationship. Now, unsurprisingly, the concept for, quote, indigenous irregulars, as these paramilitary forces were first called, was suggested by the United States in the 1960s. As Eric said, we did not want communist insurgencies in the Western Hemisphere, but we were kind of on our way at that point to getting bogged down in what was going to become the catastrophe of Vietnam. Uh, and so it's a similar strategy to supporting the Mujahideen, which unfortunately later became Taliban, uh, against the Soviet Union. So instead of opposing the Soviet Union's invasion of Afghanistan, we funded major local militia groups, including the Northern Alliance, who are now the good guys, but also the Mujahideen, to, to fight the Soviets and kick them out. Um, so at times, it's been a, at least short-term successful strategy. It's true, although obviously it can backfire, right? Yep. And so the, it's like many things in policy land, they're double-edged swords. Now, the key, the key issue with the paramilitaries is that they were not really controlled by the central government of Colombia, even though they were supposed to be working indirectly for them. Uh, like I said, they were locally regulated. They were sometimes legal entities. Sometimes they were illegal entities. But you can think of them essentially as auxiliary forces for the government. As time went on, both the paramilitary forces and the guerrillas, uh, guerrillas and insurgents, increasingly turned to illicit activities in order to finance their, well, what were originally ideological activities. So since the central government effectively lacked a monopoly on power and a monopoly on force and violence in Colombia, the country became very fractured. And the this communist ideological thread really kind of got lost along the way. And the conflict turned into just an amalgam of very confusing turf wars. It, well, it resembled turf wars between the paramilitaries and the guerrillas. So time goes on, and then, of course, the way that these paramilitary forces were used changed and evolved as well. So these regional elites began using paramilitary forces to protect their interests, to minimize social unrest in their areas and suppress protests. So what, what came of this is that one, one really interesting aspect of the peace process, when you think about the peace process as like a multiple decade long activity, in 2002, the prior president of Colombia, Alvaro Uribe, who is now actually against the current version of the peace agreement, attempted to demobilize the paramilitaries. But even though they were technically on the side of the government, they couldn't just give an order. It really turned into a negotiation between the central government and these fractured, locally controlled paramilitary groups. So without going too far off topic on the issue of paramilitaries, it's just important to keep in mind that this lack of a centralized authority was a big cause of what led to the complexity of the conflict. It led to arguably some of the rise of the major narco traffickers like Pablo Escobar that you hear about in the 70s and 80s because there's this power vacuum that got controlled at more regional levels. Yeah, and given what we're seeing here, it's actually kind of it's quite astounding that Colombia did not descend into a totally failed state. And I'm sure people have written dissertations exploring why that isn't the case. But like the fact that Colombia kind of keeps chugging on and hasn't just totally blown up 
uh, is is amazing and pretty rare given what they're looking at. So coming back to FARC, because those are the guys that we're dealing with right now. So the government was supported by the United States, obviously, and FARC was supported by the Soviet Union and Cuba, who, of course, really wanted to have more communist insurgencies in the Western Hemisphere until 1991, of course, when the USSR collapsed. More recently, FARC has been supported by Venezuela, in part for ideological reasons, because they're kind of ultra left wing as well. And for just cold geopolitical reasons, Colombia is a rival of theirs, and they are somewhat mutually insecure to each other. So Venezuela likes seeing Colombia weak. Throughout this period between 1958 and about 2013, 220,000 or so people have died. Now, it's tough to have the full number, uh, but what we do know is that about 80% of these people have been civilians. I mean, from bombing campaigns, from village raids, from all sorts of stuff. Mines. Lots of mines, too. Right. It's the second most mined country in the world next to Afghanistan. So people just, you know, walking around, doing their thing. It's, it's awful. And 5 million people have been to been displaced due to the fighting to get to safe spaces. So way more people displaced than the Iraq war and possibly more people killed, certainly more civilians killed than the Iraq war. Though, of course, over a much longer period, just to give you a sense of the scale. So it's been a really ugly war and and very brutally painful for the Colombian people. Uh, it's estimated that one of six has been a direct victim of the war, not just had a family member hurt, but they've either been displaced, hurt themselves, stolen from, kidnapped, killed, etc. FARC's power base peaked probably around 2002 when it had 20,000 or so members, and that's out of a population of 40 million in Colombia, so it's not a huge number, right? But like ISIS and a, a number of, of other insurgent groups, they've shown themselves to be quite resilient. And they occupied a whole lot of territory in Colombia, like half of it. Now, they didn't occupy half of the population centers, of course. It was a lot of rural and jungle area. But they were right on the edge of Bogota, right? It was the sort of thing that, like, if we think of ISIS back in 2014, they were right on the edge of Baghdad. And we we're saying, holy crap, could they, t could they really take it? So they were in they were in really good shape. Now, if you remember this guy Uribe, uh, he along with demobilizing the paramilitaries, he decided he was really going to take the fight to FARC and was willing to put the military at risk and expose them to a lot of casualties um, and spend a lot of money to do it. So, with a lot of United States support in the two thousands, Uribe went on the offensive. FARC lost a ton of the territory controls, way more than half the territory and dropped from 20K to under 10,000 fighters, maybe as low as 8,000. Um, so a lot of people were killed or deserted because, uh, or captured because their territory was encroached on. Despite the success, the Columbia government likely recognizes that eliminating all of FARC forever is just unlikely to happen through sheer military force. It's, it's a big country with a lot of forests and not a whole lot of government controls. So there's always places for them to hide and so for them, the best way to end the war is probably to negotiate a peace from a position of power, right? They've been on the offensive, FARC's territory is retreating, their ability to exert power is going down. So they decided that now is a good time to open a peace deal with a FARC that's really struggling and, and having trouble holding on. So if we were just to pause for a second and reflect on a higher level the point of 
the point of war. Well, what is the point of war? But more more specifically, the purpose of military action. And what the Colombian conflict, especially the last 15 years, is kind of a good example of is how stepped-up military action is very frequently is very frequently used to generate leverage in a negotiation that one or or both entities involved in the fighting think is coming. So this is something that we saw a lot sort of in the late 60s and early 70s in Vietnam. Uh, some of the most controversial bombing that occurred in Cambodia by the United States was sort of a, it was a result of these attacks that were being launched by the North Vietnamese from Cambodia. And we had kind of just stopped bombing them before the peace negotiation because we thought, you know, show a good gesture. And they used that pause essentially to build leverage by launching more aggressive attacks against us. So in a way, Uribe was kind of doing something similar to what the North Vietnamese was doing, were doing to us in the late 60s, early 70s. They were trying to step up the conflict so that they could gain the upper hand by the time the negotiations started. Right. And really, the purpose of all war is, you know, you've got some political objective, right? And we're very used to these political objectives from the period of like the 1400s to the mid 20th century being about pure territorial grabs and empire building. But it's not always that. To some extent, FARC for a while was trying to overthrow the Colombian government. But to some extent, they, they, they likely figured out that that was not going to be the case. And so for both sides... They knew that someday there was going to be a reconciliation, and both of them wanted an advantage, and that advantage ultimately comes down to saying, if we continue, I can hurt you a lot more than you hurt me, right? And so that's part of what the United States is trying to do in Afghanistan, for example, is get the Taliban to declare peace. Like, destroying the Taliban is not going to happen, but to get them to come to the table and integrate themselves into the government from a position of weakness for the Taliban, where they go like, okay, we're not going to achieve our objective and we're just getting butchered out here. So it's time to, you know, call it quits. Um, it's what Syria is trying to do to its rebels as much as Assad talks about killing them all. And it's ultimately, you know, what we did in Iraq, right? Where we said, hey, we can, you guys are getting beat up but we can offer you a better deal by being part of this system rather than fighting against it. I mean, that's that's really the point of war. It's to make people hurt enough and convince them you can keep hurting them such that you can get as much of what you want as possible. And that's what Aribe did and set up these negotiations. It's basically what the military theorist Clausewitz was referring to when he said, and I'll probably misquote this, but war is the continuation of politics through other means. That's basically what was going on. So if we step back to the current peace process, the, the big news of the day, rather than just the historical context. So what we see today, the pact that was agreed upon between the Colombian government and the FARC was the culmination of a peace process. It started in tw uh, 2012 as the government got more traction and the FARC probably realized that victory was not really as close as they had hoped and certainly not as close as it appeared in 2002 when they had approached the edge of Bogota. So there's a lot of fighting going back and forth. There's really quite a bit of lack of trust throughout this four-year negotiation period. There were multiple ceasefires that got broken, which led to a loss of credibility related to ceasefires. And you know, when you're dealing with an opponent, cred credibility is kind of important because how else can you make steps forward? 
Now, the peace, peace negotiations were supported by the United States, the UN, Norway, and Cuba were basically guarantors of the process. The negotiations were held in Havana, Cuba. And what we have now, this final agreement, is basically what the diplomats have agreed upon. But they decided that, as part of these negotiations, that the way that this agreement needed to be ratified was through a direct referendum, very similar in effect to what we saw with the Brexit. And it was not inevitable that a direct referendum process was taken. There were – the FARC actually would have preferred some sort of like limited constitutional authority, I think is what it was called, that would have made the process more predictable, right? Because there's always the threat that with a referendum, they vote the peace process down, bringing the country back to war. But the referendum will take place October 2nd. The agreement as it stands, which is the final agreement, there will be no further negotiations as the Colombian president Juan Manuel Santos has made very clear that this is the definitive agreement. We'll get into some of those controversies in a minute, but you can imagine that a people ter terrorized by this insurgency movement for decades don't really like the idea of what they consider to be impunity for terrorists. So in the end of June 2016, a ceasefire was signed that has been maintained until today, which is a positive sign. And just, just so you know some of the key players before we kind of get into the details, uh, I mentioned Colombian President Juan Manuel Santos, the leader of the FARC who was in Havana for several years, part of the negotia uh, negotiations was Rodrigo Londoño. He also goes by Timochenko. And then there's the ex-president of Colombia, Álvaro Uribe, who has actually been a vocal opponent of the current peace agreement. He thinks it offers too great of and impunity to the FARC. It lets them off with a slap on the wrist. So this peace deal is massive, and we're only going to touch on some of the highest points. Uh, even I haven't read the whole bloody thing because it's just too big. I've read summaries, so I'm going to give you a summary of summaries. Obviously, there'd be an end of the fighting uh, with... There's a trilateral uh, system for verification and monitoring of the agreement to see any breaches. So that includes FARC, the government and outside peacekeepers. So they're going to make sure, you know, people stick to what's agreed. FARC is actually going to turn in all of its arms, allegedly, and that'll occur over a six-month period once the ratification of the accord has happened, right? So they've got six months to turn their stuff in. They're going to become disarmed, which is actually kind of crazy because it, it puts them in a position of basically no power. One of the biggest things going into the peace deal as far as structural changes to Colombia's massive land reform. So Colombia had very high inequality, in particular in like land ownership and farm ownership before the FARC insurgency. And it's only gotten worse in part because during these turf battles, what happened was to fund their own paramilitaries or insurgencies, these groups would gobble up more land. They would displace people and just take the farmland uh, and often turned it into cocaine or other illicit drugs growing sites so that they could make money on it. So now a few elites own even more land than ever. So land reform to get land back into the hands of people, not just the ones it was stolen from, but, but to redistribute it generally is going to begin. And it's not a forced redistribution in the way of a communist system. What's going to happen is there are going to be a lot of like cheap and subsidized government loans. It's going to be a major, major change to the tax code. There's going to be a, an illicit crop substitution program where the government actually funds 
startups or startup farms to grow stuff other than cocaine. You know, you can't just shut it down. You got to give people another way of living. And they're going to institute, you know, paid by the government development in neglected areas, in particular where FARC has had a lot of influence um, or where there's been a lot of fighting so that people just don't have the stability to grow farms there. In addition, both sides are committing to dismantling drug trafficking organizations, which is sort of like run away from both FARC and the paramilitaries and just start doing their own thing and being criminals. And for people who are both drug users and growers, there's going to be a lot of financial assistance to get them off that uh, and less dependent on it. There's going to be a food security program to help the impoverished. One of the other really big things is that FARC is going to have political and like physical security protection because a lot of people just want to kill them. And FARC enters the political system formally. They get their own political party now that's recognized by the government, and they get some guaranteed seats in both houses, even if they get trounced in the election, uh, so that they like can establish themselves. And there's going to be major electoral reform designed to like help more people participate because a lot of people just like aren't close to voting booths and like don't have access to information and other stuff. There's going to be a truth commission who's probably basically like ministry of information style propaganda in part to like promote coexistence, but also to figure out who are victims uh, from a human rights perspectives and, and then get them help. And it's even, it's less about justice and more about like helping the victims get back. So there's going to be uh, psychosocial rehabilitation, obviously land reconstitution and reparations paid by the government, not by FARC, for people that have been hurt. For FARC members, uh, if they don't have a job, they get free money to like, in part because people are worried that FARC is so such a pariah right now that they're, people just aren't going to hire them. And there's going to be a lot of training and other like intentional integration programs for FARC members to get them back part of society. There's going to be a lot of anti-corruption, a uh, big anti-corruption push, which everyone's kind of in favor of. And finally, the government is obviously going to invest a lot in moving into and running areas uh, currently run, like de facto run by FARC and the militias. So there's a lot going on here, and it's, it's, it's difficult to track it all. When I first heard about the agreement, the, the perspective that a lot of Western media outlets have taken has been pro-peace. This is great. It, the way I thought about it is how could this possibly be a controversial thing? And as I dug into the details, that was increasingly revealed to me. The agreement is fairly controversial, and some of the most controversial aspects have to do with some of these payments to the FARC that Eric mentioned in order to kind of get them off the ground. But really one of the big ones has to do with transitory justice. So how do you heal a country that has been fighting itself for 50 years while administering justice that is fair and equitable to the victims while also incorporating back into society the very people who were responsible for those crimes? And the, the, the answer is it's really hard to do. But the, so the conservative party essentially is against this deal in part due to this lack of transparency as it relates to justice for crimes. Many Colombians just consider the FARC to be outright terrorists, not, you know, these euphemistic terms like an insurgent, an ideological communist, et cetera. No, they're terrorists and they committed crimes against humanity. So how do you deal with them? Well, the accord will basically let a lot of FARC senior members off 
more i mean impunity is a word that is being avoided in in discussing this issue but more or less with impunity less senior members if they are accused the way this transitory judicial system will work if they attest to their crimes and make an attempt to make amends for them then they will essentially have access to this set of alternative sentences that will be more aimed at making amends to victims rather than strictly as punitive justice so if you confess and if you own up to it, then these, these FARC members will face five to eight years of what's called, quote, restricted freedom. And I don't actually immediately know what that means because as part of this transitory judicial institution, if FARC members don't tell the truth but are subsequently found guilty, then they could face up to 20 years of prison. So there's something different going on, on there. But the, the ability to get off relatively free, whatever restrictive freedom means, you know, so long as there's a confession involved, really hurts a lot of a lot of Colombians. And ex-president Uribe likens this essentially like a slap on the wrist for the FARC for these terrorists. So this is certainly an understandable perspective. People in Colombia have suffered. Uribe's own father was killed by FARC guerrillas. So you can you can understand that perspective. Now, exchange for turning over their arms the FARC will gain formal access to the Colombian legislature as a political party. This is another highly controversial part of the peace agreement. They will nominally take part in the congressional elections in 2018, but this election, this first election in 2018 that they will be a part of is kind of like a warm-up. It's a formality because the FARC is guaranteed five seats in both the Colombian House and Senate, so 10 seats total. No matter what happens in the elections, those seats are guaranteed to the FARC. And as I understand it, those seats remain guaranteed to them regardless of electoral outcomes until 2026, at which point they're supposed to have established a political base for themselves. So that's something that people are very irritated about. Irritated is a mild word for it. This gets even further complicated because the FARC... Uh, as we've mentioned, has, fi has financed its activities to date through the drug trade, kidnapping, all other sorts of illicit activity. And they made a lot of money doing it. Black market is profitable if you don't get caught or killed. Now, this money isn't exactly kept in registered bank accounts, as you can imagine. So a lot of Colombians are very worried that the FARC will use this money to gain an upper hand in the political process once they are converted to a political party. And the anticipated fear is that the FARC will push Colombian institutions more to resemble something like Chavismo in Venezuela. So that's one of the fears. One of the other concerns is that giving FARC political legitimacy may empower them a bunch and like get more people excited about them as they project their message. So it's just, you know, if you imagine they get a lot more followers... And if they return to trying to take over the country, uh, they may actually end up being stronger for it. You know, we said they're going to turn in their weapons, but, you know, black markets are like, it's pretty easy to get weapons wherever you want to go, as it turns out. And um, this actually, so some Colombians think this actually puts them at risk of FARC reigniting the campaign after they've been able to regroup and, you know, are welcomed into the capital and such like that. And it's sort of like every time you try to make peace with the Russian-backed insurgents in Ukraine, right? They just, they regroup. They prepare themselves, Russia lines up at the border, everyone freaks out, and then inexplicably fighting starts. 
the rebels gain some land, and then there's a new peace deal where the rebels end up with even more. So people look at stuff like that, and they kind of go like, mm, I don't know if I trust this. One of the other really controversial parts, we talked about them getting money, but if they want to, if FARC members want to start a business, uh, they actually get like a free $2,500 per month for two years to start that business. And that doesn't sound like a lot of money, but in Colombia, it is a lot. That's four times GDP per capita, which means it's a lot more than four times the normal income. So they're getting this like big pile of money to do stuff with, and it's like going to be really hard to you know, maintain transparency and make their make sure they're actually using that for trying to start a business as opposed to, you know, whatever they want to do with it. Yet another thing people don't like is that even just like the process of ratification is pretty controversial, right? So because it's a referendum, it could fail in part because of all the stuff above that people don't like, right? And it doesn't look like it currently will, and we'll talk about that. But if it doesn't pass, the war is going to resume. And Santos, the president, has made it pretty clear he's not going to keep negotiating. Right, so it's it all comes down to like one day, one vote. The future is in the balance of sort of a single moment, and whatever the mood of the country happens to be at the time. FARC leaders preferred a more limited constitutional assembly rather than appealing to the Colombian people, and so it's one of the things that like for political leaders or political thinkers uh, is a little more scary. It's like, oh god, what's going to happen? Yeah, as you'll recall, Brexit was totally, absolutely going to fail no matter what, right, guys? Right, exactly, and. Uh, and, you know, polls, we, we've been surprised more and more by polling uh, in the past few years than we have in the past, right? So, like, we don't, we don't find them as reliable as they used to be because, like, something's changing in a way that, uh, in a, you know, old polling statistics aren't recording anymore. And one of the things that, like, makes this look pretty dim in some ways is that President Santos's approval rating is like somewhere between 20 and 30%, which by the way is like a lot lower than George Bush or Truman near the ends of their careers, right? So it's worried some FARC leaders and other people that want peace that it can impact the viability of a yes vote. And then we of course turn to one of the really big structural things, land reform, tax reform and corruption, which like seem like pretty wonky things, right? But it's of course going to be one of the more controversial as well. For the accord to be effective, the government is going to have to quickly push in a number of development projects in previously FARC-controlled areas that FARC people have a lot of power in, in order to begin to employ the former rank-and-file FARC members, right? Because, like, one of the things you want to do to make sure that they're not going to turn back to their guns or the drug trade or kidnapping or other stuff that they've done to make money in the past is give them a more legitimate way to do it. And these development projects... And like the imposition of all the government institutions and security in all these regions to make this happen is going to cost a whole lot of money for a very, very long time. And that, of course, is going to have to come from the government. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. 
Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. And here's where land reform begins to be controversial. Since a fair amount of the Colombian government's revenue comes from oil sales, and if you listen to our episode on oil prices, you will know that oil prices have been slumping recently. So the Colombian economy has been hit by this. So in order to raise sufficient tax revenues, in order to sustain these development initiatives that are part of the peace deal, the Colombian government will need to raise taxes. Everyone's favorite thing, right? Read my lips, no new taxes. So raising taxes in a challenging economic environment anywhere is hard for, or would be hard for any government. But raising taxes to help support what a lot of Colombians consider to be terrorists is, well, very controversial. Some younger Colombians, so think, you know, 20-something-year-olds, are frustrated because they know that it is going to be their generation paying for these FARC-related government outlays for the development projects and the $2,500 monthly stipend. And they just feel like they're kind of getting the short end of the stick here. And just to make things a little bit more confusing, a lot of Colombians kind of scoff at this explanation that, oh, well, it's all oil prices, and that's you know really why taxes are going to need to be raised. And they instead point to what they consider to be a very corrupt, inefficient government that has mishandled the economy. So many see President Santos as the head of this corrupt government and consider this peace deal to be a pact between a corrupt establishment on the one hand and a Castro-Chavez regime that could potentially gain a lot of political influence and they're going to be paying for it in more taxes. Yeah, and for those who are saying Chavez, what does that mean? It means like in the style of Hugo Chavez, the former <clears throat> democratically elected president of Venezuela, who, you know, has ended up running the country into the dirt, both through very questionable economic policy and nationalization, and just straight up, you know, corruption, and bleeding out whoever was politically inconvenient at the time. So people are worried that this is going to give a corrupt government a whole lot of power over a whole lot of not only tax money, but also the economy as a whole due to their mandate for development projects that could go to cronies and also just lead to long-term economic uh, stagnation or decline for the country. So within all of this controversy, how are Colombians actually feeling about it? Well, it's tough to say, right? Polls are one of those really dodgy things these days. If we look to July, uh, you know, because the peace deal was signed in June, people have had some time to think about it. If we look at July, people are pretty excited. They had a 10 to 30 point advantage for yes, which is pretty big. August polls looked very tied and also split, right? So like one of the major polling companies showed yes on the peace deal slightly ahead. One showed no. September polls look like they're consolidating around yes. It's somewhere between 65 and 72% of Colombians. So it's looking likely from the poll direction, but it's also one of those things that like it's been swaying back and forth. And if we... You know, look at Brexit or the U.S. political election, who's got the advantage at a particular time can change. And it all comes down to, like, how people happen to be feeling on that day, as opposed to necessarily how people are feeling long term. So if we start thinking about consequences, right? So if it doesn't happen, 
if there's a no, then people are likely to return to war, right? FARC and the government are going to go back at it. And who knows at this point how the government's going to respond? Will they do an Uribe type push to try to take out FARC once and for all and just get them to sort of unilaterally disarm and give up? Or is this going to be a protected thing? Or is it going to sort of be a Cold War where neither of them really want to keep fighting, but they don't really know what to do anymore now that they don't have a peace deal? So a no vote would be very confusing. And, we, you know, we just can't predict what's going to happen because it kind of all depends on what kind of resources both the government and FARC have available to them um, and what kind of repositioning, reconsolidating, rearming, etc., has happened since the June ceasefire, right? Because the ground situation has likely changed for both of them as they've pulled out of the trenches. But let's say it does happen. There's a small splinter group of FARC of like 200 people that says it won't participate, which doesn't seem like as big a deal. The ELN, which makes up some uh, 2,500 to 4,000 combatants, says, or well, isn't included. And they have one of two options, right? They can either keep fighting because they weren't included and they want to get their own thing, or they may realize that they need to come to the bargaining table because their eight to 10,000 strong big brother uh, has been taken out of the fight, and so they have a major disadvantage against the government. I would guess that it's the latter, but again, it, it kind of comes down to what ELN wants, ultimately, and whether they think they can take the advantage while the government is focused primarily on trying to deal with this massively complex systemic political, social, and military and security change that it's going through. Another concern that I've come across chatting with some Colombians is that the the deal with the FARC is too generous and will actually set a negative precedent for when other insurgent groups like the ELN might want to come to the table. So they're afraid that not only are they going to be stuck paying for the FARC, but they're basically saying, hey, ELN, check out all this money that the FARC got. You want some? And then they're going to be stuck paying even more in taxes. As a quick aside... Whereas the FARC was initially a rural movement, the ELN grew sort of from these more urban settings. It was an outgrowth from outrest in universities. So according to um, Kimberly Taedong, who's a um, professor of international humanitarian studies at Tufts University, the ELN's ideology, this is a nice quote, traditionally been considered a mixture of Cuban revolutionary theory and Catholic liberation theology. So in addition to being this smaller group, couple of single thousand digit soldiers instead of 20,000, they also have different ideological underpinnings than the FARC as well. So it's somewhat unclear how reintegration will work if reintegration will work. The FARC is a pariah for most Colombians. It'll be probably very difficult for them to get jobs. They may or may not be welcomed back into society. You know, unemployment right now is about 9% in Colombia, and FARC is only about 10,000 people in a, in a country of about almost 50 million, high 40 millions. So it could be easy to for, for other Colombians to just completely shut out the FARC from a position of bitterness even though 10,000 people relative to a much larger country might not have a huge impact on unemployment. It's hard to tell. So as it relates to guns and arms and all that, you know, there's lots 
of arms floating around Colombia, lots of guns. And it won't be hard for the FARC to get those again if things don't go so well. So it's not like they turn over all of their arms in the six-month probation period to the government and then they're stuck and have absolutely no leverage whatsoever. It would be harder to pick the insurgent back up, but it would be possible. If it works, then the longest ongoing civil war in the world will end. It'll be messy, but it's possible. One of the ways we can think about what are the consequences if it occurs is we can look at some other major reintegrations in history, right? So one of them we can look at is the United States. If we look at the U.S. Civil War, reintegration was very, very hard, right? It was a major long-term occupation, and the economy of the South collapsed because it lost its major source of free labor and therefore wasn't able to competitively create the crops that it was creating. So it had to majorly reshift, and to some extent, it never quite did, right? Like, the South has never caught up to the North in the United States as far as economic growth outside of places like Texas that have a lot of oil. And FDR said in the 1930s that reintegration with the South was never completed. And you might even say it never quite has been. Now, of course, the South hasn't yet risen up again, but there's still a lot of resentment with the North or against the North. If we think of the reintegration of the Sunnis in Iraq um, during the Civil War there, a lot of Sunnis became part of the Sunni awakening, and it looked really good, right? It looked like the Sunnis were going to be the good guys, and they were going to just join the government. Everything was great. And even though they were guaranteed a place in the government, in, in both the executive and legislative branches, that piece ended up breaking down. They felt very blocked out by the majority, and they did return to war. And that was a big part of how ISIS was able to take over because they had so much, uh, the Sunnis had so much resentment against the government that they initially welcomed ISIS as a Sunni Islamist group to help them fight against the government and try to change the order. So that could happen with FARC. The IRA took a very, very long time to reintegrate properly into Northern Ireland. I mean, the war really, I mean, it was, it was very low grade. It was just sort of trash can bombs occasionally. And piece of trivia, if you walk around London, you will notice that there are very few or no public trash cans or mailboxes for that reason, even today. So it took a very, very long time for them to reintegrate into Northern Ireland as well. In short, when we've looked at these civil wars or insurgencies, so in short, when we look to reintegrations of insurgent groups in history, particularly in the Western Hemisphere, when it is successful, it often takes a very long time, is messy, and to some extent, full reintegration doesn't always quite happen. One of the things that might make FARC different is that it is somewhat less regional than the United States. It is not South versus North. It is significantly less ethnic than Ireland versus you know the United Kingdom. And so therefore, after a generation or two, it will be harder to identify who is like a child of FARC or like part of the FARC versus a normal Colombian. So there's some hope there, but in the short term, it is likely to be this like really nasty, sticky process if history is a teacher for us. So what does this all mean for the world order? So not just Colombia, not just South America, not just the Western Hemisphere, but the world at large. Well, let's start with the environment in Colombia. It's The country is really held on amazingly well and actually prospered despite the war. It's a relatively poor country 
with a GDP per capita of under $9,000, but it's not in crisis. So even though decreased oil prices are straining the economy right now, putting an end to this conflict could have the opportunity to spur significant uh, economic growth, especially if the land distribution, uh, land redistribution and the development projects are effective. Yeah, what that means geopolitically is, you know, again, Colombia is by population the second largest country in South America next to, of course, Brazil. Um, and if we look at South America right now, the big players are Brazil and Argentina and kind of Chile. Venezuela used to be one, and now they've collapsed and just make a lot of noise. Argentina is looking at its second default because they're in a massive debt crisis, and that's going to mean a big issue for both their government credit and their corporate credit. And so both of them are facing some big crises. Whereas if the security provided by the peace deal is able to help Colombia enter a sort of like growth golden age, in particular, if it, you know, uses its trade agreement with the US well, if it's able to leverage its oil, etc., then they may end up becoming the second largest economy in South America. And we'll start to see Colombia being a regional player in a way that Argentina and Venezuela currently are. Now, one of the risky things there is that if we think of power transition theory, which I'm, of course, an accolade of uh, as a determiner of war, what we might see is that as Colombia's power relative to Venezuela starts to equalize, we may see more conflict there. So what happens is like Colombia and Venezuela are somewhat mutually insecure. They also, even if you're more of a liberal theorist, as it's called. And if you don't know what that means, don't worry about it. But if you believe that ideology tends to lead to conflict, Colombia is a little more right wing. Um, Venezuela is very, very left wing and hostile to other ideologies, like in particular the United States that it considers imperialist. So there's potential for a lot of conflict there as they start to equalize and as the South American order starts to change. Now that's made a little bit more confusing because Venezuela, which sits right on the border of Colombia to the east, Venezuela is really having crazy domestic political upheaval right now. So will that make a resurgent Colombia feel a little bit better because Venezuela kind of has their own stuff to deal with right now? Maybe, but something that history has shown us is that if there are effective revolutions that can institute new systems, sometimes those systems allow for the allocation of resources and capital more efficiently than the administration that came before it. And sometimes that actually leads to higher incidences of international warfare after revolution. So whether or not the current president of Venezuela, Nicolas Maduro, gets overthrown or not, will their political situation will almost certainly impact the regional international situation in sort of the northern part of South America. Yeah, and to further complicate things, there's a phenomenon known as wars of distraction. So when domestic governments are very unpopular, it is sometimes convenient to create an external enemy that they have to fight, right? So like for Chavez and to some extent Maduro, it has been the United States. You know, they've sort of said like, oh, look out, the United States is there. They're going to do something, right? They're bad. And they, uh, you know, the reason that life is terrible here is because of the United States. And some people believe that. But given that there's almost a revolution, people are starting to smell that it's BS. And one of the things Obama's done really well with Venezuela is ignore them, right? So Chavez would make some thing calling Obama the devil and other stuff. And he just literally doesn't respond. 
And so it's it's taken a lot of teeth out of that. And so to some extent, Venezuela may look for a new external scapegoat. And in particular, if you see Colombia starting to do well, as Venezuela is doing poorly, it would be somewhat easy for Maduro to try to externalize that problem and say, hey, look, this is probably Colombia's fault somehow. You know, you can always paint a narrative. And, uh, you know, as Goebbels may have said, if you lie enough times, people start to believe it. Um, so that may be a source of conflict for them as well, even if the revolution does not happen. It just may be a way for Maduro to try to get his popularity back. Yeah, and we're not forecasting a revolution here in Venezuela. We're just saying that they're experiencing political upheaval, just for the sake of clarification. Now, okay, we've talked about sort of this northern region of South America, but let's talk about all of South America now. Colombia is a major U.S. ally in South America, and the U.S. is more or less been close to a number of different countries in South America over the last couple of decades, one of which has been Brazil, which is really the powerhouse of South America. They, I, I think they have the largest economy. They definitely have one of, if not the biggest military force. Both true. Yeah, good. Uh, so both. And they're also very adept at, despite their hard and soft power, striking this sort of neutral position within the multilateral institutions that they're a part of in order to kind of play the game from every perspective. But they've been a strong U.S. ally. Something that's happened over the course of the last couple of years, however, has been some damage to the U.S.-Brazilian relationship. This is, in part, this happened with some of the Snowden leaks when it came out that the NSA was spying on a lot of different Brazilians and Brazilian leaders. Dilma Rousseff, the president at the time, canceled a White House dinner, and it... It's hard to tell behind the scenes how much that actually hurt relations, but it definitely put a damper on the public relations aspect of our relations with uh, Brazil. More recently, though, Dilma Rousseff was impeached, and she's no longer the president. She's been kicked out. Uh, this guy, Temer, is a the interim president, I think, for six months before they figure out what exactly to do. And these sort of two big names in Brazilian politics, Dilma Rousseff and her predecessor, Lula da Silva, have been indicted on, and I think actually at this point, found guilty of corruption charges. So sort of the leadership that was establishing and maintaining this positive relationship up until a couple of years ago with the U.S. is now also falling apart. So does a resurgent Colombia get to take advantage of Brazil's weakness, and does that benefit the U.S. in its position in South America? And finally, let's look globally. Now, Colombia is unlikely to become a global player. They're too small. Their economy is not going to pick up quickly enough. You know, they're not going to play the game the way that even the BRICS do, BRICS being Brazil, Russia, India, China, and uh, South Africa. What this peace deal might mean is it may act as a benchmark or roadmap for other peace deals that may come along. It's tough to say, in part due to the fact that like stuff like Syria and Iraq and Libya and Afghanistan are so different from Colombia and and really every insurgency has like threads of similarity and many many threads of uniqueness to each other but it may serve as a sense of a roadmap that other groups may start to look to and say ooh this kind of worked like we were able to see successful reintegration we were able to see you know not only peace but then also hey everyone won and and there was a economic boom so if this goes well it's the sort of thing that people may start looking to emulate in other conflicts. Now, it's hard to say whether a single piece is going to lead to a cascade of peace elsewhere, but it's the sort of thing that more 
cool-headed individuals in different situations may get hopeful about. Because frankly, this looked like a very intractable war. It had lasted 55 years. It's the sort of thing that a lot of people would have expected a hard stalemate or a painful stalemate to pick up on, and there would have been peace a long time ago, but it just kept churning. So it's actually somewhat remarkable that within only four years of negotiation, they were able to reach a peace agreement and a working ceasefire. And if this passes and if it works, it's it's got the potential to be a model for other stuff. Um, and that could that could mean a lot for you know some of the higher conflict regions, in particular of the ideological variety as opposed to like the ethnic variety that we are seeing throughout the world right now. So, whew, all right, that was that was an information heavy show. Yeah, there will be a quiz next week. Pay attention. Oh, it's too late. It's too no. You can re-listen to it for the quiz. And then pay attention. It's an open book, open podcast. Yeah, open book. After listening to the show, lots of information, but you now have a pretty good overview of what's going on in Colombia. And we think that after listening to this show, you will be fully prepared to sort of understand what will be some of the nuances that our guest on our next program, Professor Retberg, will talk about. So... This is this is a huge deal. It impacts not just Colombia, South America, but the United States and the world. As we said, we we don't think it's been getting a lot of coverage. So we're we're glad you tuned into this episode. It is an important process. And just to insert my own personal bias a little bit, man, the Colombian people must be resilient. And to have the opportunity for peace after five decades of war, I I'm hoping that everything goes as well as it possibly can. So the fact that you haven't been hearing about this very big deal is a good reminder for you to not let the pundits do the thinking for you, but to pause and reconsider. This is Eric signing off. And this is Xander signing off. We'll see you next time, guys. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.